0: the lady with the bell. So while you're enjoying your lunch uh, and uh, reflecting, I hope you enjoyed your first two sessions. Do I get a yes? Good. <laughs> uh, just a couple of announcements. Uh, I've, been, I've been told to read it this way. Just kidding. Hashtag, hashtag, see I messed it up. Hashtag cow bike is happening. Thanks. So he's right. I'm wrong on this one. So hashtag CA Bike Summit is happening. So use those tags. Get us out on social media. Because if you don't see it on social media, it didn't happen. Okay, we have pictures to prove this morning happened. So moving on from there, uh, our politicians talked a little while this morning. So we got a little behind. They were wonderful talks. We were very happy to hear what they were saying. But they did go long. So we are, unfortunately, we are going to have to do our, well, not unfortunately, but fortunately, we're going to do our, uh, the thing we were going to do this morning, we're going to do that after our plenary, our lunch plenary. And unfortunately, I'm sorry to announce that Celita Reynolds is unable to join our lunch panel. Uh, Due to very unfortunate circumstances, she's very sorry to miss this and wishes us strength. So... We are with her, and we will hope to see her next time. Now, it's my pleasure to introduce our newest appointee to the California Transportation Commission, Tamika Butler.
1: How's everybody doing? That was weak sauce. Uh, How's everybody doing? All right, so um, thank you so much for coming. Um, We are going to do a lunchtime conversation. Um, I really only have three questions, and then we're going to ask for folks from the crowd to also um, have questions for our speakers. Um, I'm not going to tell you much about our speakers because I want to allow them in their first question to talk a little bit about themselves. Um, But for questions, you will see in the middle of your table there are some writing utensils and things to write on. Um, You can write down questions on note cards and hold them up. And staff members will come and take them. Um, and then we'll try to leave as much time as possible uh, to ask as many questions as you have, because they will be way better than my questions. Um, and we also ask that you generously laugh and clap and say things like, oh, that was insightful, um, for our panelists uh, who are who are one panelist down and feeling like they have to carry a little extra weight. So. Just uh, make them feel loved and appreciate it. And then last, we also just want to say thank you um, to, um, to the crew that is helping clear plates and serve us and working so hard today while we all have the privilege uh, to be here. So let's... Your hair is on point. I just wanted people to clap for you because it was, it was looking good. Um, and so, if I can have um, my panelists um, come up, um, we have Ryan Russo um, coming and joining us from Oakland, and then um, Oaktown. I hear you. I hear you in the back. It was weak. Um, yes, those are your mics. Um, and then we have Kome coming from the local Los Angeles region, but all of all of all of Skag. So, we're going to have you each start by just telling us a little bit about how you got to where you are in your career and and what is your job? What does your day to day look like?
2: Sure. Okay. All right. Nope, we have to turn these on. I I guess we have to turn them on. And everyone, good afternoon. Hello uh thank you Tamika for that introduction and I do have to say not only do we feel the pressure of filling in for the wonderful uh Salita Reynolds but to have you as moderator I generally prefer to listen to you share wisdom rather than be the one uh sharing so that adds to the bar so it's a privilege to be uh moderated by you Tamika um so uh I'm Ryan Russo I'm currently the director of the Department of Transportation in the city of Oakland, which is a two-year-old uh, Department of Transportation. And, but my background is uh, very bi-coastal. Um, I grew up in the East Coast. I'm not gonna give you my whole biography, but grew up in the New York area, went to grad school in the Bay Area for planning and practice there, went back to New York and did over 13 years at the New York City Department of Transportation. Um, I served, uh, and what I did there was build a lot of bike lanes, amongst other things. And um, one of my, about three years into my work at New York City DOT, advocates did an amazing job of telling City Hall how easy it would be to build lots of bike lanes quickly. And they came to the Department of Transportation City Hall and said, how many bike lanes can you build in three years? Can you build 250 miles in three years? The powers that be negotiated down to 200 miles in three years. And then appointed me the bike and pedestrian uh, program director to deliver those 200 miles in three years. um our topic of barriers to building out our bike networks is very near and dear to me because i've seen the different ceilings that prevent you from getting to these ambitious goals so i had the privilege of serving under mayor michael bloomberg and uh, dot commissioner jeanette khan uh, building protect the country's first protected parking protected bike lane on 9th avenue in manhattan uh, building out the bike network, doing pedestrian plaza work, Times Square, Herald Square o- over those years. And, uh, and then after those 13 years, uh, the Bay Area came calling again where I had gone to grad school. And uh, under the leadership of Mayor Libby Schaff, Oakland, and uh, really incredible work, again, around the theme of today, which is advocacy and finding our barriers, advocates in Oakland did a great job of saying, we need a different way of thinking about our public rights of way. And as we grow and, and uh, change as a city, we need to manage those rights of way with more than just maintenance in mind. And so they did a reorganization, formed a, a Department of Transportation, developed a strategic plan. We were able to write our own DNA as a department, uh, which is uh, a real, it's, it's great to sort of have that fresh start and then, uh, and then I was uh, appointed as its first permanent director. And since that time, hopefully some of you saw uh, our Oak Dot team and partners presenting our awesome bike plan. And the Oak Dot folks and Oakland folks, if you could represent. Oh, Woo! Those are the folks doing the work that I'm currently taking credit for. Um, and uh, uh, we have a cutting edge bike plan with real community engagement uh, sort of embedded into how we do our work. And we are incorporating bicycle and pedestrian facilities into our ambitious equity driven paving plan, and um, which we'll probably talk about. And so um, being in this new setting back on the West Coast, I see different barriers to going as fast as we'd all like to see it happen. And I'm really excited for the conversation about that today.
3: Yeah, um, I want to work for Ryan. Uh, <laughs> I don't know about you, now you set the bar. I gotta ask for all the SCAG colleagues around here to hoo hoo or something. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, SCAG people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyhow, my name is Comey I'm the executive director of SCAG. Um, SCAG is the Southern California Association of Governments, the MPO for the six county region that's Southern California. Um, it's about, uh, we have about 18 to 19 million people in our region, the largest NPO in the country. Um, I have to say those things because otherwise I, uh, I get fired. And and I have to say, talking about being fired, I have, I think I have a board member here, uh, the impressive mayor of Culver City, Megan Sally Wells. Um, so what we do at SCAG is m- Planning. And most of you work with your MPOs across the state or wherever you are across the country. Um, and so you know the nature of an NPO. I wouldn't, I don't want to spend too much time uh, covering what an MPO does. Uh, in our current Metropolitan p- transmission Plan or Regional transmission Plan, the 2016 RTPSES, we have for by by-compared activities, the active transmission program is budgeted about $13 billion for the SCAG region. So that's what the plan has. Uh, we expect to update that plan in 2020. Um, and I expect that number to grow um, to closer to $20 billion in terms of what we hope to uh, propose as a funding program for, uh, for the next 20 years on bike BikePed in the region. Before SCAG, um, I worked at, SCA- at Caltrans. And I think there are a number of Caltrans folks here. I know they're are... All right. Come on, people. <laughs> so I have to tell you, um, I went from grad school to Caltrans and I worked at Caltrans for about 29 years. Um, Now, you could say I couldn't find a job anywhere else is why I stayed that long, or you could say I really enjoyed it and I think it's the latter. I really enjoyed it and I have a number of people here that I had the pleasure of working with on a number of different issues. Um, Now, typically this group and Caltrans are not as friendly. Uh, (laughs) Right? Did I say something wrong? Um, but, you know, I, I, think, I think that's overblown. I think it's, it's also misplaced. There's a lot you could do to help Caltrans, and there's a lot Caltrans can do in the bike pet area. One of my privileges before I left Caltrans was to work on the last strategic plan for the department, and we had a very uh, bold, hairy, audacious goal for bike and pet for, uh, for the department. And, and I think that's still the current strategic plan for the department that they're trying very hard to, uh, to implement under. Uh, and it was really intended to triple bike trips and, and double pedestrian trips uh, under um, the various strategies that the department was pulling out, uh, of course in concert with the state climate goals. Now I spent my career working as a planner, i trained as a planner, um, uh, and, and working on transportation uh, plans all through my career at Caltrans and, of course, uh, migrated somehow by accident into, into leadership and uh, found that it was, by the time I was in Sacramento, I used to work in the districts and it's really, I still maintain that the district is really the coolest place to work at the department because you actually get to do real stuff. Right, John? This is John here. <laughs> we tried to bring John to Sacramento. He didn't like it. Um, um, so, we uh, at the district level, you're working with your jurisdictions, you, you're dealing with day to day things, especially the one area of, of Intersect that I find to be very interesting with bike paddies where you have a state highway that also doubles as a main street. Those are just like I want to say low hanging fruit, but it's more like slow moving meat. I mean, they can. <laughs> Those are the kinds of things you could you know you can get your hands on, and uh, i'm vegans vegetarians i 'm sorry I mean <laughs> I, I like meat so um, <laughs> and so these are really unique opportunities that sometimes we look past because we 're fighting over some freeway expansion, some interchange some we fight over those big things, but we forget that there is this. Uh, slow-moving meat of a, of a concept with the main streets, and we spent some time. One of my pride and joys was when I had the opportunity to work in Sacramento for the first time was to start the community planning program in, the, in 2020, uh, 2020, the year 2000. I'm, I'm old. Uh, the year 2000, um, it was intended then to begin to uh, basically bring the department down to the community planning level rather than just the state big global highway type construction um, uh, firm that it was. So, so I spent I spend my time at Caltrans, a lot of my time at Caltrans working on non-highway type work, uh, especially on the planning side of the, of the house, on transit and on, on bike ped, and of course uh, influencing um, very strongly on the strategic plan uh, that is current at Caltrans. Bringing myself back to SCAG, um, have, having now found that I could be employed somewhere else, I landed at SCAG as the director of planning a couple of years ago and came in uh, the, at the beginning of the development of the 2020 RTP SES which we call Connect SoCal uh, and we're on the verge of releasing the draft of that document next month hopefully uh, for bu- public review over the next two months into uh, into the new year. Um, I was really intent on really going back to basics and doing planning and then of course there was an opportunity that came up in, in April that I again uh, fell into becoming the executive director of SCAG and I just absolutely love the people I work with it's a fantastic place there's so much opportunity uh, at SCAG Uh, over the three cycles of the ATP and I'll I'll close on this SCAG has put out over half a billion dollars in ATP funding um, in our region Um, I you know when I was (laughs) thanks Dave when I was at Caltrans, we were hard-pressed to find $100 million for the original road system uh, in, in that same period of time. So I think it's instructive to, to understand what the context of that amount of money is that goes specifically to active transportation. And I have one of the best active transportation teams. Have you ever seen the Go Human campaign around town? Who's seen Go Human? Okay. Uh, is, is any Go Human staff here, Hannah? Um. Somebody, you stand up. Come on. Don't be shy now. Take a bow. There you go. And for those who are not familiar with Go Human, I think it's for me. It's it's one of those tactical things that we do that again gets overlooked because it's not. You know, it's not as high-minded sometimes, it seems, but it's real because we go into communities and demonstrate how these things could work and get people to actually touch and feel what a bike-ped facility could look like. And then, hopefully, they can turn around and be able to describe it in real terms to their policymakers, you know, like that one over there. You know, it's easier to describe that than to show this engineering drawings of, of bike lanes and try to get people to rally around it. So so it's been a real worthwhile effort that we've had with GoHuman and it just doesn't seem to go away uh, with both advertising and, and the tactical uh, displays that we have in various cities. I think we've touched uh, more people with that program than we could with any single plan.
1: Great, thank you. So you've each talked a little bit about your career, and, and in talking about your career you've talked about funding you've been able to secure and disperse. You've talked about you know, miles of, of bike lanes you've been able to get onto the road. Um, But this thing kept coming up around barriers. So what are some of, for those of us who care about biking and walking specifically, what are some of the barriers um, that you're facing um, in doing this work and getting more people on board with biking and walking, but also just getting the infrastructure um, and the resources to the people who need it the most?
2: All right. Thank you, Tamika. Before I get into that, I know there's a lot of feelings in the room right now about SB 127 and and the veto and the work that advocates did at the state level around that policy. And I think it's very relevant um, to sort of what we discuss around um, what advocates can be doing to remove barriers. And as a champion, an internal champion to bicycle and pedestrian work, I will admit to you in all honesty today that I've been in the inside of government agencies and have advised the executive branch against very great sounding uh, policy bills that say, hey, you have to do this or you have to fund that or do this many things. And um, that's not always easy. And I think um, thematically, your your friends are in the room in the agencies who are doing the work, and when these types of defeats happen, it's very frustrating. And it's important that uh, it not be personal, personalized to folks. Uh, but on the other side, I think um, advocates should not be shy about fighting hard for what they believe in. And I think what we're talking about today is how do you fight hard, but make sure you're fighting smart. And that's where we get into these barriers to your question. And, you know, you can put the barriers into big buckets. There's like political, political will, if you will, which is really a subset of kind of the cultural will. And like, does our culture and does our body politic actually believe that cycling can be a legitimate form of transportation and That is the big barrier. You're all working towards there are people who don't believe that and it's easy to see why given how we've developed here in California and how auto dependent that we are and So you've done work, and I think the work is now you have legitimacy and the funding programs and and policies but how much does the leadership how much is that lip service versus do your leaders whether it's department heads or your elected officials are they giving you lip service or are do they re, do they really believe it um, and those actions that are taken help give you that kind of data point um, the more that that cultural change begets that political change, which we're all seeing change, the more then it becomes kind of an operational barrier for people to deliver. What are the delivery constraints and uh, around not just money, so once we get political will, that comes with funding will. So then you have sort of project delivery and that that can easily trip you up. Uh, And I think that the other aspect to this that I think is a really big point is the barriers, the ceilings are going to be different in every community, municipality, county, region, and state. And you're kind of constantly having to assess what that barrier is. And um, in Oakland, some of the constraints to delivery are very different than what they were in New York City. And what, what I saw evolve tremendously in New York City was the political will went off the charts from just an advocacy group you had to sort of do some lip service to and put some ambitious targets out there to eventually, in part due to the Vision Zero movement, that the advocates got ca- candidates for mayor to promise that they would take action. Once those promises were made in an election, that meant money had to come so then so we kept removing all of those barriers money wasn't a barrier so each year is it your striping capacity is it your concrete and sidewalk delivery capacity is it your uh, professional skills uh, that are the that are um, you know we don't have the expertise to design and implement that so do we need to send people uh, to training to learn what the cutting edge practices are, um, sometimes that's a that's a barrier. Um, and then you know these ceilings that you have. It's not only state, regional, county, local. It's street by street and neighborhood by neighborhood. So in one neighborhood, it might be that they haven't they don't have any trust of government. And I think that's what you heard about it if you were in our uh, Oakland breakout session. Is that we. As a baseline, before all the bike lanes come, we have to build a trusting relationship with um, neighborhoods that have not had a trusting relationship with government in general and the city of Oakland government. So we have to build that trust. So I think I see the work, like if I could boil it down to like one word, is edge running. We're all trying to find what that edge is um, to deliver the most, but not sort of fall off, fall off the wave or fall off the cliff. Um, and I think that you kind of have to always be calibrating.
3: Well, I, I think everything Ryan said is true and I will subscribe to that. But I, I feel like part of it is we, we have this sense of, of dissonance where you're actually on the same side but you seem to work in cross purposes, and I had this experience working in the department because we were actually trying to do bike lanes, but it didn't seem that way. Um, and I always, I, I always think it's akin to winking in the dark. Sometimes you know what you're doing, but nobody else does because the department doesn't quite talk about all the things they're trying to do, uh, and so it's not apparent that they actually are working on on bike lanes. So there's that dissonance that occurs. But I think the other part of it is just understanding how government works. I think the nature of advocacy is more revolutionary and you just, um, for lack of a better phrase, you just wanna slash and burn and move on and and get stuff planted. I mean, you don't care how it's gonna happen, you just want it done. Um, And yet, you're dealing with this edifice of of a government that's very deliberate. The budget is year to year. The bike lane that you want to build that's ten mile long, it probably doesn't fit in the budget for the next two cycles. And so, understanding that difference in the mode of operation of the two sites, I think, is important. And and I've always felt like you know when you know when you when we when I was at Caltrans, for example, uh, and I dealt with uh, advocates it was very important for me to have them understand how it could work. Uh, and, I, and I think if Salida, was, if Salida was here, she would talk about the same thing, that really you have friends on the inside of these agencies that want to do exactly what you want to do, but they have constraints. And you have to understand their constraints and then enable them to be able to thrive within those constraints and get things done. Because they can't build something that they don't have a budget for, they don't control the budget. So being able to get at the politicians to get that budget capacity so the agency can do what it could do, I think it's also a big step in the process. So so I think there's a, there's a need for that common understanding, seek first to understand and then begin to move together forward.
1: Great, thank you. And so we were gonna ask a question around uh, what you all needed from advocates, but I feel like you've addressed that, so we would love for, for folks at tables to write questions um, and pass them in. We did have one question already that kind of built off what you both were saying. So there's this need to understand um, how government works, how bureaucracy works, how budgets work. Um, there's a need to push, um, but also build trust with people on the inside. Um, but we had a question that said, you know, advocacy groups often do that and they try to, to work with cities and elected officials, but when it, it's just not working, at what point should advocates stop calling in their friends on the inside, and at which point should they start calling people out?
3: Like, we're gonna stop you calling people out? Come on, people. Uh, <laughs> you're gonna do that anyway. Uh, I think that comes with the territory. But, I, you know, I, I think, I, I think it's, it's a lot of work. Uh, and I, I, always one of the things I always appreciated working with uh, the likes of Dave and and uh, and Ginny Wortwiler when she was on on the other side, um, was the the strength of of the intellect they brought to the table to have a conversation. And I'll give you one story, and I think each, the, part of the story should probably tell it. And and some of my Caltrans colleagues will probably cringe that I'm telling this story. So we um, we had a program that was going on within the department where we had committed to anytime you overlay a road, anytime you go out and do new pavement work before you put the lines back like it was before, think about the, cap- the potential of including capacity for a bike lane or just bike capacity and and that was becoming it was getting ground across the state where what used to be a four-lane road became a two-lane road with a with a with, with bike uh, capacity on on the road and parking uh, moved out of the way and things like that. And we're beginning to see some of those on on the conventional highways in the department. Now it wasn't happening fast enough, it didn't happen as like a revolution. But this was a set policy, and I can I, I think some of the district directors that are here would, would bear me out on that. Um, and so we had a pro we have a program, the shop program. How many of you are familiar with the shop? If you're an advocate, you don't know about the SHOP, you gotta go to school. Um, <laughs> so the SHOP is Caltrans Maintenance and Rehab Program. It's, it's where most of your gas tax money goes because that's all it can pay for is to rehab the existing state highway system. And so in the SHOP Program every year, we made a point. It's part of the strategic plans of the department. We made a point of making sure that we can get so many percentage of it to, um, to accommodate active transportation in the SHOP program. And so we had this thing where we, we had a target to do that, and we, um, we didn't quite get as far as we could get. And one of the advocates came in and had gone through our entire SHOP program, district by district, every single project. We're talking hundreds and hundreds of projects, and they've identified where the highest potential to put a bike lane is in, our, in various districts. Now, as the chief deputy director, I was embarrassed because that's work we could have done. Uh, now, they weren't correct 100% on everything, uh, so there was some pushback there, but you can imagine how weak a pushback that was. Um, where they were incorrect when, in fact, they were correct on a lot of things. And so that's the kind of work that advocacy could bring to the table Uh, because it wasn't something we were used to doing on the natural, but it taught us from that year on you couldn't catch us not looking very very closely at every project because we didn't want to be surprised again uh, on, on that front. Now, on the regional planning level, we have an active transportation um, working group that we we run at SCAG, and we get a lot of participation in that. And there's always push to do more uh, in in that in that respect. What helps is to come to the table with you know informed positions on what we can actually do. And and again, you have to remember that regional planning is more is more of a volunteer type situation. It's not it's not really enforcing or imp- implementing a real project. And so we have to be able to propose things that people would think are reasonably implementable. And so that's where the discussion lands on the regional plan level. And we've been able to do that at SCAG to uh, use the interest or the sentiments or the uh, ideas from advocates to shape the program so that when it's implemented, it has that tendency to it. Uh, But I I don't think there's any, any, um, any threshold to where you don't call people out because I think like Ryan said, it's not one size fits all. You have to be context sensitive. You have to know what you're you're dealing with, what the community you're dealing with looks like, what they can take, what their capacity is. But you have to be educated about all of those things.
1: So Ryan, maybe you can speak to this. I, I think that's a really good point. And I think having an advocate that can spend the time to come in and go through that list of hundreds of projects it's really helpful, and I think something that a lot of the paid advocates in the room can take a direct lesson from. But I think there's also a lot of advocates in the room, especially because um, Cowbike has done such a good job this year of reaching out to non nontraditional um, advocates who you know, are folks who represent their neighborhoods. And if a mother's son gets killed, she might not have time to go through a list of projects. And so someone had a question about, it sounds like what what this is boiling down to is building trust and building relationships or even building knowledge to know who you should even set the meeting up with if you do develop that list. And so the question was how does somebody, like what steps do you need to establish that trust? Like what does it actually look like to get to a place where you can play that inside outside game and build trust?
2: um so i i'll sort of from experience i I do think in oakland folks have been big on just relationship building it's a smaller place and you know the having a beer getting to know someone if you can if you know the the sort of your equivalent on the inside and building those personal relationships i think that's really that's important but i want to kind of Kind of go back to the 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 first question and sort of in terms of when you get more strident, if you will. And I have been um, I was close friends with the advocates in New York and the executive director who was always punching. And then it seemed like this, the government embraced the agenda and was delivering, and they just kept punching, and it drove me crazy on the inside because it felt like we were working so hard to deliver, and we deliver, and it was like we were that mule attached to the cart with a carrot just dangling in front. And no matter how fast we ran, the carrot was there. Um, and, as, and I felt that my team needed to be more inspired and a little bit more, as a manager, I felt like we needed more pats on the back. But ultimately, what I learned was to not be so thin-skinned and And I think that's the message to the government folks is we have to develop a thick skin and we can't take it personally even when it comes with some spice. And especially now in a different context where I have leaders that I have to be accountable to who say the number one issue in my city is potholes. And I'm, you know, two weeks ago, I was at an elementary school talking to uh, a high school student who lost her mother three days earlier in a speeding, turning vehicle traffic crash, and um, and still, I'm hearing that potholes is the number one thing that I need to focus on. I'm desperate for, uh, if they make it personal about me and say, hey, here's a rally, do something, city government, it's not, a, not about me. They want to see their government respond. And I think those allies you talked about, those sort of non people have been hearing from the bike advocates for a long time, but I do think the advocacy world, the building the broader based coalition uh, and and hearing from that is incredibly uh, powerful and incredibly necessary.
1: Thank you. So our next question is, how can enforcement be made more effective where contact with law enforcement um, gives solutions instead of punishments? And we don't have things that happened in New York like over-enforcement in the wake of a cyclist death.
0: Um,
2: so, uh, one of the, one of the things that was really uh, great for me, we did before there was a Vision Zero program in New York. We put out a pedestrian safety study that called for a task force between the Department of Transportation and the NYPD. And we met every month and built a more trusting relationship that when Vision Zero came along, they actually believed us when we said, here's the data and here are the behaviors that cause crashes. And we should, if you're doing enforcement, like don't do broken tail light stuff, do failing to yield to a pedestrian at turn. And that was um, uh, because we built again, a relationship that was able to happen. The other part that um, what gets a lot of headlines on Twitter is that the precincts in, in New York are, every time there's a fatal bike crash, they seem to be showing up and pulling over cyclists for not having bells or crazy things like that, uh, which is incredibly unfortunate. But the core of the citywide enforcement strategy has been around um, the behaviors of motorists that cause crashes. One, and two, automated enforcement, which is um, the equivalent of getting a parking ticket, so speeding cameras and red light cameras, which don't actually involve any interaction with the NYPD, which has ancillary benefits, uh, because speeding and red light running are the things that cause crashes. Um, so I think the I think the and then in Oakland. Our bike plan uh, surfaced a lot of inequities around who's getting stopped on bicycles. We, We have the data of who gets stopped, and that we see as a barrier to cycling, and again, we see that as an opening to be a bridge between the community and the Oakland Police Department to convene and try to hopefully reform the practices to make it whatever's happening is based on either data or community input.
3: Well, yeah, I, I don't have a whole lot on the enforcement side, of, having not been an opera, um, operator of, of facilities. But I think, to just to pick up on what Ryan said, we can understand that law enforcement is probably overwhelmed with a lot of other things, and so enforcement on, on active transportation infringements or... Um, infractions may not be the highest priority. So we, we kind of suffer from that. Uh, where we find ourselves more useful at SCAG is to help with the education of both local enforcement, especially when we do um, the Go Human uh, campaigns and we're out on the ground and we're demonstrating how a bike a bike pet facility could work on the ground. Usually there's local law enforcement there. Uh, it's usually on a weekend, everybody could see it. And so there is some measure of education uh, of all sides, both law enforcement and, and the people uh, in general. So where you might find it difficult to get law enforcement's attention on enforcement, I think we want to spend a lot more time on education and hopefully maybe redesigning the street and taking the street back through some more engineering. Uh, so the other E's become even more so uh, enhanced than the enforcement we're not getting.
1: So we probably only have time for, like, two more questions, so I'll try to combine a few. Um, if we can all agree that we need to foster more people walking and more people biking, what are the opportunities that Caltrans um, or SCAG or local transportation departments and agencies have to make climate change play a bigger role in transportation project decisions? And what are, what are some radical things that, that we can start thinking about and how can advocates help?
3: I think you should give people a ticket for driving two miles. Um. <laughs> now I, I, I now I say that to get your attention, but I think um, <laughs> I think for sure the short trips, and this is something we're spending our time on at at SCAG. We overlook those short trips uh, from our com- from our houses to the grocery store, and you know it's not. It's not a place for me to get in my escalate. I don't have an Escalade, um, for me to get in an Escalade and drive two miles, go get a gallon of milk and come back. Uh, I think there's a climate implication to that, uh, but it also speaks to how we've designed our community such that that's the only choice or that's the first choice I have to make. So I think it's really making climate an element of, of our community design is important. If we can take, if we can take the 70, 72% of trips of those short trips um, that are made in single occupant vehicles today, uh, people go into the three miles. If we can convert just half of them uh, into bike walk trips, uh, I think we would have gone a long way to reduce VMT. And, and we have data that shows that. And that's one of the things that we, uh, we have at SCAG is we have a lot of data that can demonstrate the climate implication of bending the curve on short trips. I think that's just one quick one.
1: And then um, we had a number of questions about working with businesses and how do you get businesses to build infrastructure? Um, How do you show businesses that bike lanes improve business? Um, And then one in particular, so maybe Ryan, just you could tackle this business question, which I think overarching is, how do you work with businesses? But this question says, in the Bay Area, there are corporations willing to pay, willing to plan and fund separated bike lanes. Um, How do we make it easier to to just work with businesses?
2: Sure, Um, I think actually the two questions are interrelated because one thing I want to say about this work or I've found is I think we're in it because like bicycle pedestrian friendly streets deliver Improvements in so many public policy realms—public health, public safety, sustainability, um, economic development, livability—and so, but it doesn't deliver 100% in any one of those. So, what I have found is that you're kind of on a message; you only get one or two kind of bottom line sort of like this is why we're here trying to do this thing and what I saw in New York we released a sustainability plan in 2007 plan YC and said we're going to build bike lanes everywhere and it's going to be great for sustainability six months later the economy collapsed and um, our messaging became around these streetscape and reconfigurations were around local economic development. And we did a lot of work to study the effects of a bike lane and pedestrian improvement on retail sales, local retail sales. And that became a big message. But that wasn't always a convincing message, but it's having data is one way to answer that. Then um, safety tends to be kind of, I, I see it as a message of, Um, It's incredibly important. I think drives why a lot of us are in this work because of the national tragedy of 40,000 surface transportation deaths a year. But it's a very defensive message because for the business owner or the community member who perceives themselves as making good choices behind the wheel or needing those deliveries, the 40,000 number or the number you say on that specific street isn't necessarily um persuasive even though safety is a fundamental um, aspect so i do think that on the business side it is for a vibrant local economy ultimately um, that that these projects will drive more foot traffic will drive more business and there is a ton of evidence to sort of show this it's counterintuitive for someone who thinks that you know the business their customers need to park right out in front or the trucks need to deliver. I do think in the sort of, again, to get to barriers, one of the barriers is the amount of, to get the projects right. I found that we in our downtown offices, we don't, these designs are surgical intrusions into the a living city, right? We're not in a greenfield planning a new city. So we do need to hear how businesses work, how people walk, across the street, how they drive, how they bike, in order to get the designs right. And that's one of the reasons why these things aren't popping up everywhere. So I do think sort of for advocates who might see that work or the designs that come out a compromise because some parking was preserved or loading was preserved. I, I do think that's like part of the work in a, in a city with a, with a history and you're doing retrofits to streets that already exist. You have to, because if you do just say, hey, this is the right thing to do for the climate, and boom, it's showing up tomorrow, you're gonna get stopped from doing the next one because you won't have done that work to figure out you know, exactly how that street's worth. So that's not totally satisfying, but I do think it's important in certain contexts to have those, gotta have those conversations and make it so that that constituency becomes the champion of your next project.
1: Great, thanks. So our, our last question, um, a, a big question, um, you know, there's a lot of local context going on when we think about the theme of the conference being intersections. Um, we have, we have a, a governor who vetoed something, but it's a governor who's also telling us we need to think about spending transportation dollars on housing and land use. Um, we, yesterday was Indigenous Peoples Day, and unless we are folks who are indigenous and native to this land, um, we're, we're all settlers in some way, right? So gentrification and displacement are, are at the front of a lot of people's mind, but it's been something that's always plagued our country and our history. Um, we're in a country where some of us are transportation advocates, and we want to do work to help people move freely and be mobile, but as black folks, we know we can't stand in our own house and not risk being shot by a police officer. And so there are all of these things going on in the world that may not be directly related uh, to transportation and the way that for so long we have talked about transportation. But when you think about the California Bicycle Summit being about intersections, what is one of the most important intersections with transportation to this work? that you think about that is on your mind and that you think we have to get better at incorporating into transportation conversations?
3: Oh, wow. That's a big question. I like big but, questions. Yeah. But you know, in, in my 30 or so years of, of working in planning, I spend a lot of time in transportation planning. And now at SCAG, I'm spending a lot of time on housing. Um, the one thing, uh, and this is going to be like really stupid, the one thing that is critical and most important in all of that is the people. And, you know, we spend a lot of time drawing, um, designing stuff, and designing big infrastructure projects and designing big programs to fund um, things that we hope would move. The socioeconomic uh, needle in, in in a positive direction, um, setting up projects and things like that, and and a lot of times we forget why, and and really that's the question that's sometimes missing in what we do. Whether you're an advocate or you're an agency person, is to understand why you do what you do, because if we stop to think about the fact that it's about people, it conditions some of the next steps you take it begins to make sense to you that, oh, maybe um, there is a relationship between um, crime and city design and and street design. Uh, Maybe there is something about the fact that there is uh, poverty because of lack of mobility and because, you know, there is... lack of affordable housing, all of these things begin to intersect as a matter of policy. Now, can you solve for all of that at once? I think that's that's really naive to think that. But I would argue that in the narrow paths and, and the threads that we we follow, it's to focus on why we do those things. If we stop to think about what it means to the people that we're trying to serve. I think it begins to then unite because if if the people are the center of what I do in housing and they become the center of what I do in transportation, somewhere in there, both of those policy sets will find some natural intersect and work together to hopefully lift people up. You know, we we just did a study at at SCAG and I I was intrigued by, by what Ryan was saying about, you know, people forget that if you have more people walking, you actually have economic benefit to it but you also solve for crime problems because more eyes on the street means there's less crime. We did a study on the west side and it had nothing to do with crime. In fact, nothing to do with walking. It was congestion pricing. And it was, we call it the mobility go zone. And we looked at the west side and we, we cornered off a certain area and studied what effect it has when you actually make people think before they drive, because you're going to pay a premium if you drive certain times of the day, and that makes you think, maybe I should drive later. Now, that reduced VMT. It reduced delay, congestion, which we were trying to solve for. It created some revenue that you could now spend on transit and and active transportation stuff, but it also created walkable walkability and 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 people on the streets to it at economic benefit these are things that you know was beginning to intersect on so many different fronts because it's about how it affects people ultimately
2: thank you so much for that question three words for the work in oakland housing placekeeping and humility um housing is just the overriding challenge right we have a national housing crisis because we don't have a national housing policy california is the worst the leading state in that house national housing crisis the bay area is the leading region in that housing crisis and oakland in many ways is the leading city unfortunately in that housing crisis and what that means is this proud infrastructure that caltrans built these freeways that we built are actually sheltering our residents who after they lose their home which is this terrible irony given the history that we have and so seeing our work through the lens of how can we save our communities money time and support affordable housing and more housing uh, development and housing preservation and homeless prevention is really overarching so that's kind of the key intersection for us in that work and placekeeping oakland's uh, tremendous pride uh, where the Black Panthers were founded. It's, it's just value of justice that Oakland stands up for. It, it means there's a tremendous history that change is, has come and change will come. And we have a responsibility to shape that change, to work with our communities to shape that change in a way that they feel that that place has been kept and their sense of belonging has been kept. And that's a monumental challenge given intersection one. So that's how we approach our work at the Oakland DOT. And then doing it with a sense of humility. We have these big, massive challenges that kind of require these moonshots, right? And we've done those things in the past. with the interstate system or other things. And we would love to see the bike network kind of pop up the same way the interstate did, but we did not do that with the proper humility, which led to many of the problems that we have now. So. You know, serving a community like Oakland, how do we work as government with that level of humility so that we can problem solve together and accomplish those first two things?
1: Great, thank you. So let's let's give a round of applause to both of our panelists. You know, I'll I'll end by saying we we all miss Celita today, and and of the the three panelists. Um, these are two new friends of mine. Salita is someone I've known a little longer. And something I've always admired about Salita and I know for some folks, Salita has mixed reviews, but I'll I'll always ride with a woman in power um, who is willing uh, to to put her neck out there and you know, parent two kids at the same time, because that shit's hard. So <laughs> I I will always respect that. And and something I've I've always um, learn from Salida that I think you heard from both of our panelists today is when you're working with agency um, folks, they're still people. And that sometimes as advocates, we have to turn up the heat. We have to push them. We have to call them out. We have to tell them what they're not doing right. We also have to tell their bosses that. We also have to tell the folks that we elect into office, and we also have to participate in elections. And at the end of the day, I think something that's become very clear for me in my work um, at Tool Design, some, some folks know we recently came out with the three E's, which I think are really cool. And then people for mobility justice came out with the five D's, and that's dope. So you, if you don't know about the five D's, just learn about the five D's. Um, but I will, I will say, for us at Tool Design, we've been talking about equity, we've been talking about empathy, and we've been talking about ethics. And I think that's really what I try to think about when I think of all of this work. Because when I was an advocate, it was tough. And it was hard to sit at lunches like this and have people who worked at cities and got better paychecks than me and had better hours tell me to just like, it felt like work harder, right? And so I know for some people that that's how it feels. I think now that I've I've seen the other side and, and been appointed to a commission, I'm hearing that differently and I'm hearing that with empathy. And and what I'm hearing is that we have to try to listen to each other. We have to try to understand where each other are coming from, and ethically, we have to do what's right for people, which I think is, is what Comey was trying to say. It's not just what's political, it's what's right for people. And so as we all go out there and we think about the buzzword of equity um, that for a lot of people doesn't mean much, and as we think about what it means to do what's right, think about the fact that no matter what you're doing, you're doing this for people, you're doing it with people, you're doing it against people, but you're still doing it for people. And I I will end by saying, last night I was at USC guest lecturing for a class and the teacher asked a question about how it feels to be part of the transportation movement finally when everybody is realizing all of the mistakes we made in the past and finally trying to fix them. And I said, well, when we get to that point, let me know. (laughs) Because one, I don't think we're there yet. And when I look around rooms like this, I still see a majority of white folks. And I still see folks in power who don't look like me, who don't have my life experiences. And I think we're still working with a system that is not broken, but was built exactly the way those people planned for it to be. And the only way we're gonna to get to that point where we're apologizing and trying to fix it is if we can acknowledge that and we can acknowledge the intersections at which so many different social issues come together and realize that while we're calling out you know, elected official and agency folks and as we're raising money for our advocacy organizations, the intersection that we're all at is that we're trying to make things better and that at one point or another, we're gonna to have to figure out how to talk to each other to do that. So as you go out in the rest of the conference, I hope that you continue to talk to other people, you continue to be grateful for the space that Cowbike has created, where they have brought together um, a more diverse group than we are used to seeing, both by profession and background, and that you really push each other to think about what is your role in this work and how are you gonna make things better? Thank you.
0: Well, there's nothing I can say to follow that up.